0: You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students, with God honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This Is Asbury.
1: Welcome to This Is Asbury. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Nesselrode. Uh, I chair the psych department here at Asbury. and I'm also director of the Honors Program. And uh, our guest this morning is author and self-described perpetual theology student, Caitlin Chess. You may know of her from her involvement in the Widely Viewed Holy Post podcast. Her most recent book is The Ballot and the Bible, subtext or subtitle, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics, and where we go from here. So we're so glad that she is here on campus to offer an invited talk to our community, one that's sponsored by the Honors Program here. And by the time this episode is released, her recorded talk should be able to be found at the Asbury Honors website. Simply go to asbury.edu slash honors, and then to colloquium speaker video to find it. So welcome, Caitlin. I got your book when it first came out and really enjoyed learning about how prevalent references to the Bible have been, really, throughout the entirety of American history. In particular, I enjoyed the span of the history. I mean, you, you go all the way back and explore the use of scripture by those arguing both for and against the revolution, but also the breadth, looking at candidates from opposing sides of issues and how they have anchored their remedy to the, our current problems to Scripture, and how they make their case to the American people, oftentimes with biblical imagery and reference to the Bible. But I've got to start with this question, and that is this. Given all the acrimony and the divisiveness, the, dare we say demonization of opponents that characterizes so much of our current political culture on all sides, to be fair, what motivated you to address this topic? I mean, <laughs> I presume you're like the rest of us. You like people to like you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. I keep telling you know people for years now, this has been my work, and it's like the two things you're not supposed to talk about, religion and politics. And I was like, I will make my career talking about both of those things. Um, you know, honestly, I kind of you know came of age and developed my ideas about the world in a period of time that was really politically contentious. I was in college during the 2016 election. I was at a Christian school where we had a lot of conversations among students about what we should be doing, how we should respond to this. And in that period of time, both transitioning from college and then going into seminary, where I had a lot of peers that were like, I'm gonna go into ministry or I'm gonna teach Bible studies or I'm gonna counsel people. And I feel like what's happening affects my people. I feel like I have something that I need to offer but I also feel like there are certain things I shouldn't say or do and I'm trying to figure out what my role is and so this really pivotal time in my life when I was figuring out what am I doing? How am I supposed to respond? What is my vocation? A lot of things kind of conspired to make me now look back and think God was really directing me towards these topics being kind of the rest of my life and I feel grateful that I think I have been kind of shaped and formed and maybe gifted in ways that are helpful for this um i was a college debater so i am very comfortable with conflict (laughs) and and i just think in general these topics feel really important to me and so i want us to figure out how to talk about them well not just to debate them and to be like comfortable with conflict but to really find out how we can bring the different good gifts that we have and the perspectives and the opinions And bring them to bear on our communal conversations about this and this book in particular you know i've spent the last few years doing a lot of traveling to christian schools or to churches and organizations and talking about our faith our public life what those have to do with each other and the number two top two questions i always get asked are One, someone will come up and just have a Bible verse, (laughs) like, tell me what Romans 13 means. Or when Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, tell me about that. So that was a really common theme was scripture and how we're interpreting scripture. And then how can I talk to my aunt at Thanksgiving? Or how can I talk to this person I have Bible study with? Or how can I navigate these really challenging relationships? And I feel like especially people my age, I'm kind of on the Gen Z millennial border line, that's the most difficult part of their relationship with their families is politics. That feels like it determines everything else. And so I wanted to write something that could help us figure out how to talk about scripture and politics well together in community. And so I went to history partially because I wanted us to evaluate what are the habits we inherit. We don't just inherit habits from our theological traditions, what denomination we come from or tradition, but also just as American Christians, we inherit certain habits. But then I also thought, for us to have good, tangible examples to work through together, maybe they needed to be from far enough back in our history that they weren't the most hot-button issues of this moment. So I thought, you know, I don't think anyone's fighting about the patriots and the loyalists at the Thanksgiving table. Maybe this is an example that we could come to together and say, let's use this example to figure out what Romans 13 means, instead of using the thing that we're all posting on Facebook or Twitter about and that's really contentious, let's lower the temperature a little bit, and maybe these examples could help us do that.
1: Okay, second question. As I said earlier, I really appreciate how you went back to analyze the biblical rhetoric used by American politicians and preachers making political arguments, to be clear, from the time of the revolution forward. For me, you seem to highlight just how common and how at ease we are with Bible speak in the public square but also how typical it has been for politicians on both sides of issues to find biblical justification for their position. So I wanted to ask this question. What surprised you?
0: You know, I think in some ways our use of scripture has basically been the same the whole time. (laughs) We have always used it to justify the political positions we already wanted to hold. If anything has changed, and this was sort of not so much surprising, but it was strange to go back in the history and read kind of really obscure Bible references because we use it basically the same amount, but how obscure the references we go to has changed a lot. You really can't get away anymore with a common phrase that was used during the Revolutionary War, which is the curse of mirage, which when I read that I was like, I've read the Bible a few times and I have no idea what that is. It's from Deborah's song. And it's a curse against this group of people that biblical scholars aren't really sure who it is, but this group of people who didn't come to Israel's aid in battle. And so there's a curse against them for not coming to aid in battle. And that was used against the people who were not sufficiently enthusiastic about the revolution. And so that's the kind of thing that like I can't imagine a politician today confidently citing the curse of Muraz and assuming that everyone knows what that means. So that has changed. But also I think what was maybe most surprising to me was Not just that we've used scripture in similar ways, like going back to the Revolutionary War, we did use Romans 13 to say, no, obey the government, there's no exceptions, just God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But also that we use similar arguments about our opponents and their view of scripture. We've never really had a period of American history where we didn't say that the other side didn't take scripture seriously, or they don't really believe the Bible. Or the one that's really wild to me, there's a letter that an Anglican priest, Charles Inglis, wrote right in the heat of the revolution, back to a missions organization in England, and he said, well, what's so great about this situation is that our churches are growing because we just preach the gospel, and the churches of these other traditions, they are just dying because they preach politics in the pulpit instead of the gospel, and I thought, oh my gosh, that could be a social media post today like our church preaches the gospel your church preaches politics and he talked a lot about the obligation to obey the king but to him that wasn't politics that was the bible the bible says it whereas i'm sure pastors and other congregations were going i'm not preaching politics i'm just saying look acts five twenty nine says we must obey God rather than human beings. And God is the one that ordains government, and this is an unjust government, so we have an obligation to rebel against it. You know, that's not politics, that's just the Bible. So that was surprising to me, is how often there were phrases like that that I thought, oh, you could see that exactly word for word today, and that's uncomfortable (laughs) to realize that we've basically done the same
1: thing the whole time. It challenges our notion that there are these, like, separate spheres that don't (laughs) overlap, and these are sort of constructions that we have, and you can't really start doing anything before you if you reflect on it, you realize, wait a second now, the public square uh, and Scripture are going to be overlap Absolutely. Now, Fascinating. Two of the principles that I pulled out that you were bringing us back to constantly in the text that you wrote, the book, one, uh, the importance of having a proper hermeneutic when coming to Scripture, and two, that we all must acknowledge that we bring our own narratives to our reading of Scripture. In psychology, we might call that a perceptual readiness we have a readiness we're expecting things we expect things then you see things right yet you also challenge us to hold on to the idea that truth exists reminds me of Jesus' question to the expert and the law in luke 10 when he says how do you read it and then the expert answers and it's interesting that jesus doesn't just say well you have your interpretation i have mine (laughs) he said you have answered correctly right um do this and you will live so Okay, so given hermeneutical challenges, we don't all have advanced degrees, uh, given the presence of our own biases, but also the notion that truth with a capital T really exists, how are we to faithfully and biblically engage in political life? And I know that's huge, so maybe you can just pick <laughs> a couple points or a couple concepts which you think are of the most kind of weight associated with them.
0: Uh, no, you're right. It's a big question. I appreciate what you just said about feeling like we need to get a degree in Bible to be able to do this. I talk to people all the time who grew up kind of believing that it was easy to interpret the Bible. They grew up in churches that said, you just read the words on the page, it'll tell you what to do. And then at some point they started asking some harder questions. They read some books and they went, okay, wait, no, actually it's so complicated. There's historical context and there's theological questions and there's all this translation stuff and and then I think the the good part of that is that they realized it was more complicated than they thought, but the bad part is it can feel totally overwhelming. And one of the, I think, responses I always want to have to this, that's a good answer to this question as well, is that in the chapter that I wrote on the Civil War, I talk about how a lot of people love thinking about Civil War biblical hermeneutics, because it's a really interesting question and a really important moment in American history where we were divided on what the Bible said. Abraham Lincoln said in his second inaugural address, where both sides are reading the same Bible, praying to the same God, invoking him against the other. And so this is an important moment, but a lot of people will focus all of their attention on two white sides of this argument. They'll say, okay, well, there's the white slave people, and here was their hermeneutic. They were the literalists. They said the Bible says it. I believe it. that settles it. Paul said, slaves obey your masters. There you go. And then there was the white abolitionist side that kind of had to draw on more complicated biblical scholarship and new theology from Europe and found really complicated ways around this problem. And what really that misses is that there are enslaved and free black interpreters in this period who are not doing either of those things. And I think really important is to say that they were not the most theologically educated interpreters that were all fighting about this question, but they did seem to see most clearly the demand of scripture on the people of God in that moment. And so I think that should be an encouragement to us to know that We don't have to have all of the education in the world to see clearly, but maybe what we have to do is, one, look across the diversity of Scripture. Um, They weren't looking for a single command, a single verse that they could pluck out and say, well, there's the answer. They were inhabiting the larger narrative of Scripture, and especially stories like the Exodus, and saying God is a liberating God who sees oppressed people and fights for them, and we as the people of God belong to that same people across time and space, and so we can find comfort in that story and motivation for our work. Um, But I think also really importantly, they were not kind of the powerful or the wealthy people in that situation. And so for us, I think that means we've got to look to a diversity of perspectives. We have to ask, who are the voices interpreting the Bible in my own context that actually look more like the people who originally the Holy Spirit inspired to write these words, which were very often the oppressed, the downtrodden, the poor. Um, And we've missed that often. We've often thought, okay, if i read enough books if i learn enough rules for interpreting the bible then i'll know how to do it well and that can feel really overwhelming and instead i would say we have to have humility and that humility involves looking at scripture and saying i'm going to make my best judgment with the available evidence i have but i'm going to be willing to change my mind i'm going to wait for the guidance of the holy spirit in particular political moments but then also the humility to say maybe actually this is true of the story of redemption throughout all of time that The people who really see clearly what God is doing are not always the people you expect. So I should learn from the scholars and I should read the books, but maybe I should also pay attention to, for example, the Christians in apartheid South Africa, the Christians resisting Nazi Germany, the Christians who wrote about these questions of politics from a very different perspective than the
1: ones that we tend to be listening to. That's really insightful and challenging. Okay, a couple more questions. Are you optimistic about how the people of the book are going to understand political engagement going into the future? I mean, your subtitle mentions where we go from here. That seems to be optimistic. Where do we go from here? I don't think anyone wants to stay here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I'm at Duke now, and so Stanley Hauerwas, important theologian who um, is still wandering the halls at Duke, he wrote a book about the Bible and American politics. I think before I was born, where he said, he started with this very provocative claim, which he loves to make big provocative claims, and he said, we need to get the Bible out of the hands of American Christians. The subtext being, they have abused it. We should not trust ourselves to use it anymore. We have done too much harm. And I think people who feel that way today have good reason for feeling that way. I'm sympathetic to a lot of, especially the younger Christians I talk to, who will say, love the history that you're doing. I would love to hear all the gritty details about every bad thing we've done. But then doesn't that mean that there's really nothing for us to do anymore with the Bible? Shouldn't we maybe just stop involving it in public life? And I think Wass's point is really good, but actually the point he's making is not just we've abused it so much we can't use it. His point is actually, the actual quote is to get it out of the hands of individual Christians. And his real point is we're supposed to be doing this in community. We're supposed to be reliant on the larger tradition of the church to help us understand this. And this very American idea that I kind of stand over the Bible as the sole interpreter, and I'm kind of the arbiter of what's true and right, is really pervasive, really hard for us to overcome. But I do think the reason I'm optimistic is I see people in communities today going, I actually have come to the end of myself. It turns out I actually can't interpret this well. I've seen, sometimes looking through the history, sometimes in my own life, that I can make really egregious mistakes with this, and it can harm people made in God's image, and it can misuse God's word. And so I need both my immediate community and I need the community of saints throughout time and around the world to help me understand this. And, and so that's why I love this Harawass, I mean, to get the Bible out of their hands. I just want them to open it, keep it in their hands. But instead of wielding it like a weapon or holding it up like a prop, I want us to open it, submit our lives to it, and read it more widely and more often with a more diverse group of voices, helping us understand it. And it's funny sometimes I'm talking to pastors who are like, How can I help my church read the Bible better for politics? How can we have better conversations as a congregation about politics? And I know it seems very unhelpful for me to be like, I think you should read the Bible more together. (laughs) They're like, I know we that like that's something we've often done, but I really think. Too often what we've done is we've said for the rest of our lives, we read widely, we have Bible studies, we ask good questions. For our political lives, we have one night, a couple months before the election, on a Tuesday, and we all get together and we hash it out. (laughs) And we both, in that one Tuesday night, act like there's only maybe five verses that apply to our political lives. But we come to that with all of those preconceived ideas we already know what questions scripture is going to answer about politics in the book i talk about how the 70s and 80s there was just so many christian books written about does the bible support capitalism or socialism as if that's a question the bible is interested in asking you know so we already when it comes to politics i think we have an especially difficult time reading scripture on its own terms being surprised and discomforted by what it has to say and so my response is to say instead of picking one night right before an election season and hashing it all out. Let's become the people that are accustomed to the fact that scripture will say something to our public life. Let's spend six months in Jeremiah or Isaiah or Genesis. I like the Old Testament, but also maybe in the New Testament, spend some time in Romans. But do it without being afraid that there might be a moment when this verse speaks to this moment that you're in. I was in a Bible study in Dallas, Texas, when protests were happening in the summer of 2020, we had a curfew, we had to change what time our Bible study was meeting, but we were almost six months into Jeremiah. We had built up trust, we had showed each other that we cared about scripture shaping our lives, and then this public event is happening and it feels like Jeremiah is speaking directly to it. And we had a conversation that leaders in that church had said could never happen. We can't have that conversation about politics or about race, it's too contentious. And it was amazing what could happen when we said, We're just committed to studying jeremiah for as long as it takes us and we're not going to avoid the question of what this text says to this moment now and we've gotten used to it it's still hard it's still scary but it's not like this once a four-year thing that we do this is a normal part of our life together
1: fascinating thank you so much caitlin one more question before we wrap up you have two works out on politics where do you go from here Uh, you suggested maybe this is the groove you're gonna stay in but maybe just have a few words about if that's true or not
0: yeah i mean in some ways i kind of relate to you know some of the biblical stories Or even, i love the story of augustine who like does not want to be a priest and is like dragged into it i kind of feel that way about this of like this was not something a career counselor told me i should get into <laughs> this is not something i dreamed of doing and yet somewhere along the way i kind of realized oh, i think this is forever in a way that is exciting and feels like a real sense of calling and vocation and I mean in terms of what's immediately next I need to write a dissertation (laughs) but I do think that that will just continue to be the focus of my life in part because I've had some of these kind of unique experiences at formative moments but also just because at some point in seminary I heard a professor give from another school give a lecture about the concept of political theology and it was like that moment when you realize oh, I didn't know that what I'm going to do existed, and now I do. And now there's no going back (laughs) from here. Once I realized that the two things I'm interested in actually exist together in a field, and Christians have actually thought about these questions before,
1: there was just kind of no turning back. That's exciting. Blessings on you as you make your way through your graduate program and on to whatever else is next. Once again, thank you for your time and your insight on this very important topic.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu.